Okay, let me open us in prayer. Dearest Father, we delight to come together so that we can learn from you. Thank you for making it possible to come here this morning. Thank you for everything you've taught us already in the small groups. Thank you for what you're going to say to us now. Lord, um, guard my words, my mouth. Use me as your instrument. Use the, the studying, the preparation to glorify yourself and to help us all to know you better. Through Christ our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Wow, does that sound a little hot to you? Or is it okay? Okay. All right. So, did you get handouts? There are... Okay, there, I think, are still plenty over here, if somebody maybe could help or... Okay, thank you so much. All right. So, I had finished college, and I had a degree in Russian, but I was so embarrassed to say that I did, because Russian is so hard, that I decided, okay, I think I want to go to graduate school, and I ended up getting accepted to Ohio State. That was where my professor had gone also, and so the time came. My parents took me up there. I was... um, 22, almost 23. By that time, I had already lived for a year in Germany with, without my family, but I went to a family that I knew. And then I had been away to college, not too far away, only about 90 miles, I think, from home. And, you know, I was excited about going to college and all of that. You know. And then my parents take me up to Ohio where I know not one soul. I have talked to a pastor of the church that I'll probably be a part of, and he helped me get hooked up with a couple of girls from his church who needed a roommate. So I had talked to three people in Ohio before I left. And then the time came for my parents to leave me. They had, we had gone to the home of one of the parents of one of these girls, Cindy, and my parents needed to get back home And wouldn't you know it, when they had to leave, I started bawling. I'm almost 23. I've already been on my own. I was in Germany halfway across the world. I was in college on my own. And I'm I'm bawling because I am afraid because I don't know anybody. I don't know these people. But you know what I knew? I knew that it was so obvious that God had directed my path there. And so after I cried for a little bit, I realized, wait, 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 wait. God has brought you here. He's hooked you up with this pastor, with this church. These people are wonderful, and they're going to be a wonderful support to you too. So get a grip. Don't, Don't be afraid. 
I think I'm going to have to take that off. I don't know. He's got that wrapped around that pole. But anyway, that is as close as I can come to grasping how terrified the disciples are. That's it. They're terrified. They're distraught. Jesus himself has already told us, my soul is troubled. So ev- everyone is feeling the weight of what is, what is coming, right? Um, so let's dig in and talk about how Jesus has gathered his disciples here in this room to comfort them and to prepare them for what is to come. Just a little review here. Uh, John 1 through 12 is often called the book of signs. That's where Jesus is showing himself to be the one sent from God, fulfilling all these Old Testament prophecies of the messianic age arriving, the kingdom of God arriving. And then 13 to 21 is often called the book of glory. So um, Kay mentioned a couple of weeks back that, you know, ch- through chapter 12, his Jesus' public ministry was documented. And then last week, Terry mentioned that now we're starting a different section here, but that little section you covered last week was sort of different because the the, the discourse, which is sometimes called the farewell discourse, other times called the upper room discourse, actually doesn't start until 1331. So that's where we are. We've made it. So a few other remarks about the, the discourse itself, because this is the first chapter of four. Right. So just a, some general comments here. Uh, most commentators, like Terry said, I believe, do believe that the, the discourse starts at 1331. I think in the past it tended to have been started at 14, maybe. But that's our the unfortunate chapter divisions. You know, it doesn't always work. They don't, they're not always helpful because it seems logical to structure this section right here by the four questions or the four interruptions by Peter, Thomas, Philip, and Judas, who is also sometimes called Thaddeus, not uh, Iscariot, right? This discourse has been compared to Moses' farewell discourse or Joshua's or even David's. Let me read some verses from Deuteronomy 30 and 31. And if you want to write them down, I'm, uh, I didn't put them on your sheet. But just as I, as I read them, listen as if you were a disciple in the, the upper room there. You'll hear all of the similarities. And the Lord your God, this is Moses, of course, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And then see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and statutes and rules. Then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. The Lord Lord your God himself will go before you. He will destroy these nations before you so that you shall dispossess them, and Joshua will go over at your head as the Lord has spoken. 
And then be strong from 31. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Isn't that amazing? What makes this discourse different, though, is obvious. Moses died. They didn't see him again. Joshua died. They didn't see him again. David died. They didn't see him again. But Jesus is promising that he will come back and will take them to be with him. And there's all that interplay of coming back at the resurrection and coming back in the, as the Holy Spirit together with the Father and then coming back again right at the end of time. Then an, another issue is, um, do we have two discourses here or just one? 13, 31 through 41, and then 15 through 17, maybe? Because at the end of 14, at 14:31, you probably notice it says, let's be gone, right? Let's get up, let's go. And then it continues. <laughs> but, you know, that's, that's coming next week. But then 18 says, when Jesus had, 18:1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. It's, it's things like this that happen that, that are kind of puzzling that cause the, the negative critics to say, oh, the, the, the Bible's not reliable. There are all these contradictions and mistakes in there and, and this and that. And, of course, most of the people we would read would say, um, it's really not that big of a deal <laughs> because as a, as a whole – the four chapters cohere in what they are trying to say. Uh, Robert Mount said this about uh, verse 31. He says, It's possible, however, that the final sentence should be understood on a different level. It has been noted that in normal Greek usage, the word agomen, let us leave, may imply, let us go to meet the advancing army. Furthermore, if we take the final clause as integrally related to what is preceded, rather than as a somewhat out-of-place directive, then another solution appears likely. If the final verse, in the final verses of chapter 14, Jesus is saying, the prince of this world is coming, and he has no claim on me, yet to prove to the world my love for the Father and my willingness to do whatever he commands, let us arise and march forth to meet him. So that's one possible way to understand that puzzling thing. But what we know about it is this, that Jesus' goal is to prepare his disciples for his imminent departure through crucifixion and then ascension, when they won't see him anymore, to explain that his departure is necessary for their benefit so that the Holy Spirit could come, and then to instruct them on how to continue his mission in the world until he comes, right? I found this great quote from uh, Sinclair Ferguson. It was in, uh, sorry, I'm going to leave the microphone. In this book here, um, The Holy Trinity, that uh, Dr. Ferguson was corresponding with the author, Robert Leatham, and he told him in a private email, this is Dr. Ferguson, I've often reflected on the rather obvious thought that when his disciples were about to have the world collapse in on them, our Lord spent so much time in the upper room speaking to them about the mystery of the Trinity. If anything could underline the necessity of Trinitarianism for practical Christianity, 
this must surely be it. All right, isn't that great? I left that one. I gave that one to you there, I think. All right, so now let's let's dig in here a little bit. So Judas has left, and Jesus, I it seems to me like almost breathes a sigh of relief. Okay, the betrayer's gone, and now it's it's imminent, right? All right, boys, here's what here's what you're gonna do, All right? Here's the here's the way it is, and uh, I hope y'all talked enough in your groups about that glory and glorified and glorification verse glory all around the father is glorified in the son's obedience and self-sacrifice the son is glorified because he showed his love to the father by obeying him to death the glory is in the shame of the cross and that is a picture also of the triune god that Jesus is about to reveal a little bit uh, more deeply. And then he continues telling them what he had told the Jews before, at least in chapter 7 and 8, I'm, I'm going and you can't come with me. And then he gives this new commandment. He's starting his charge. We talked about this in a class I had last, last fall. You, you expect Jesus to say, we would kind of expect him to have said, as I have loved you, so you love me. But what does he say? As I have loved you, you love one another. Right? Loving others is loving Jesus. Loving Jesus means loving others. As we do this, the love comes back to us in our new community of love, right? When outsiders see this community, they see the body of Christ, they see his face. This also is the Trinity in action. A loving, joyful, self-giving community of three persons delighting in one another to do one another good. But Jesus doesn't get into the Trinity yet. He probably wanted to, but Peter interrupts him. <laughs> He's hung on that, that word, uh, where I'm going, you can't come. Right? And he t- Jesus told the disciples, um, Jesus told the, uh, the Jews, you can't come, and then that was it. But he tells Peter, you're going to follow me later. So he's reassuring. He's reassuring Peter. And then he gets back uh, to to his teaching. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. A lot of people say that should be, you believe in God, a statement. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, and I go to prepare a place for for you. Let me talk about that place for just a second. That place is a metaphor. It's not a real mansion, like the King James Version says. Um, it is the presence of the Father, which Jesus is going to talk a little bit more about in chapter 17. Um, It is Jesus' place in glory with the Father as the eternal Son, but he's going back in human flesh. And what does he say? I will take you to myself. 
So the remarkable thing here is that he, Jesus, the son of the father, will come back, unlike Moses, Joshua, David, to take them to be in the presence of the father so that they too will be sons. Think back to the prologue. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Those who had been the children of the evil one by virtue of the fall of Adam now have the same position of sonship as Jesus himself. This is true for us. Do you believe that? Have you experienced that deeply? This is something that apostles, I'm sure, could not comprehend. Their, their, their minds are they're swimming. What in the world is he saying? You know? And then he, um, he goes on um, and says, you, you know the way. I'm going to take you to myself. You know the way where I'm going. And Thomas, uh, wait a minute. No. We don't know where you're going, and we don't know how to get there. <laughs> Thomas, remember the one who said, well, let's go to Judea with, and die with him. <laughs> the same, same Thomas. <laughs> and Jesus then utters his sixth I am statement. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's the way. He's the means and the goal. Do a search on the way of the Lord or the ways of the Lord, even just in the Old Testament, and see what all you come up with. In another commentary I read, they, they say this. In the Old Testament and Second Temple literature, the ways, way or ways of truth is a life lived in conformity with the law. Way and life are frequently combined in Old Testament wisdom literature. The Dead Sea Scrolls, the ways of truth, are concentrated with the ways of darkness and deceit. And the, and the Qumran community considered itself to be the way in absolute terms, perhaps on the basis of Isaiah 43, which is cited in John 1:23 with reference to John the Baptist, that I'm the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. In the Old Testament, people express their faith by keeping the law. Now that Jesus has come, he is the way. He is the means and the end. He is the door and the shepherd. His death is the required means of reconciliation with the Father. His earthly life demonstrated how humans are meant to live. And he is the eternal God himself who wants to have communion with us. He is the way because he is the truth. He truly reveals the Father. As the prologue said, he makes the Father known. He said again and again, John quoted him, he and the Father are one. He speaks the Father's words. He does the Father's works. And there's also a connection there with the spirit of truth and then the abide uh, in uh, my words, if my words abide in you from chapter 8, right? There's that truth there. And then um, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So we're all, there, there's all this interplay there of Jesus and truth and life and spirit, right? Um, 
Jesus has life in himself. He said that after the uh, healing of the lame man in John 5, 26. Having life in yourself can only apply to God. In other words, Jesus is Yahweh of the Old Testament. That's what John has been trying to say. That's what Jesus has been telling them. Jesus imparts life in 521. The Father has given the Son life, and then he's given the Son the authority to give life to whom he will. Jesus wants his disciples to flourish, walking in the way, following his example, living that abundant life that he mentioned in 1010. As Moses led the Hebrews out of bondage in Egypt into the promised land of abundant blessing, Jesus leads his people out of bondage to sin through the cross into the abundant life that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And then he continues, no one comes to the Father through me. If you had known me, you, had known, you would have known the Father. And then Philip, um, Lord, wait, if you would just show us the Father, then we would believe you, we would understand. Jesus says, um, no, basically, there's not going to be a miraculous manifestation of the Father. He just reaffirms the unity of Jesus and the Father. The presence of the Father will only be mediated through the Son. Then he talks about the greater works, which I think you should have talked about in pretty good detail in your groups and then the asking and then love me you will keep if you love me you will keep my commandments did you talk about that being a future not a commandment if you love me you will all right that is a future there then this is where jesus gets in to deep deeper revelation of the trinity He's been talking about his unity with the Father again and again and again and again and again and again. And now he mentions another helper, the spirit of truth. He is coming. From the beginning, the Bible tells the story of God's dwelling with his people. First, in the Garden of Eden, he comes and walks with them. Then there's the tabernacle, God's presence with them in the desert. Then the, the temple, right, that the meeting place of God and man. In chapter 2 of John, we saw that all of this was prefiguring Jesus as the true dwelling place of God and man. And now he is telling the disciples that they will be the dwelling place of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons with one essence. And, and what does that in mean? They're all in each other, and they will be in us. That's really a mystery. All we can do to begin to understand that is look at Jesus. Study the Gospels. Read John again and again and again. And chew on it. Chew on Jesus' teaching about his relationship with his Father. Observe his life that is empowered by the spirit of holiness. 
pray and worship. Jesus says that the Father will come. They will. They'll, they'll, well, um, um, he who loves me will be. Well, I'm at tw- like 21 now. He who loves me will be loved. My Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And then Judas asks what is probably the most astute question. Wait, Lord, wait, how is it that you're going to manifest yourself to us, but not to the world? Because the Jewish expectation of how all this was going to play out was different from what they're hearing Jesus say. I, I drew this up on the board, I think was it my, my lecture in the fall, but I printed it out for you today. So the Jewish expectation was there's the old age that's characterized by sin, death, evil, Satan, the evil one. Then the Messiah would come and he would conquer God's enemies. He would vindicate God's people. He would give the spirit to everyone. Then everyone would have the knowledge of God, love, joy, justice, peace, would abound. That's how the Jews understood what was happening. And Jesus was telling them something else. And that's why, that's why Judas asks this question. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Aren't you, aren't you going to manifest? I, I thought Messiah was supposed to manifest himself to the whole world. It was, so everybody was supposed to know at one time what, you know, what's really, what's going on here. And again, he, Jesus doesn't, doesn't really answer him um, he, he, he continues to talk about loving him and keeping his word and the father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Then he talks about the Holy Spirit again. He, um, he will remind you of all of this that I'm trying to teach you. And then he, he gets back to that comforting mode, peace. I leave with you my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. On the back of that sheet, I have some diagrams. This is, this is from the class I took in the fall. Uh, we talked about shalom and wholeness and flourishing and how that was God's plan for creation all along. And I'm not going to, I don't have time to go over this, but you can, you can look up these passages in Genesis 1, 26 to 31. It's describing God creating everything and putting humanity in charge of the creation. And God would bless humanity as it ruled over creation, following his commandments and loving him and honoring him. Then the creation would yield up as humanity worshipped God, but then, of course, the fall. And then you see that, and Paul documents that well in Romans 1. You see how everything is turned upside down. Shalom has been totally disrupted by Adam and Eve. And then in 22.5 of Revelation, at the very end, we see shalom restored. Everything turned right side up again. That's what Jesus is telling them. Peace, I leave with you. Shalom, 
wholeness, reconciliation with God, restoration, all things made new. Flip back over the bottom, the bottom part of that chart. This is what Jesus is telling them. Guys, you see the, the new age that you, that you think is coming sometime way out there? It's here. It's here. Peace is coming. It is here with this glorification that I'm about to receive from the Father by dying on the cross. Peace is coming to you. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. And because of my death and then my departure, then the Holy Spirit, another helper, comes. And we will then all come. So this is, of course, prefiguring what will come in Acts that we already studied a couple of years ago. We will be with you. We are not leaving you. I'm not leaving you. I will be with you, me, myself, and I. But it's not just me. It's my Father, and it's the Spirit. And unlike those abundant blessings of the land of Canaan that were contingent upon the, the faith, the belief, the walking under God's law, We will never leave you, and you will never forfeit the blessings because the Spirit is with you forever, right? This is a whole new, whole new era that Jesus is talking about. It's here. This is the already and the not yet, okay? And got to wrap it up here. Um, let me give you this quote. I think I left that for you on um, on your sheet, the Cornelius Planting, uh, Plantinga, uh, about the about peace. Now I won't say it because I want to I want to wrap up here. But you have that. It's a it's a marvelous quote about what what shalom is supposed to be, the way it's supposed to be, and how Jesus restores that. All right, so let's pull let's pull this all together. What is Jesus telling them? What is God? What is John telling us? God is. He's come. The kingdom has come in me. The messianic age has started now. The Holy Spirit is about to be given after my death, after my ascension. God will go forward with you. God, that is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's going to be trouble, and you're going to t- talk about that more in, in uh, next week and, and uh, the, the week after. But he is promising that Father, Son, Holy Spirit will continue to bring, will be with them as they continue his mission to bring light into the darkness, to reconcile people to God so that the whole earth will be filled with true worshipers, people who know God, who love him and commune with him. What is his message for us? This is all still going to be fleshed out again in these, in, in the, in the coming, in the coming chapters. But what, what I have gotten personally out of this the the most is number one pray 
pray, contemplate the way. Fellowship, commune with the way, the triune God. Study, eat his word. That's the way I've been studying this chapter. I'm I'm so thankful that the Lord is kind of getting me away from too many commentaries too early. I've been, I can't tell you how many times I've read John 30, 13, 31 through 41 in the last several weeks. I've been chewing on it and chewing on it and chewing on it. And every time I do, he's, he's illumined my understanding that much more. So I encourage you to do that. Don't get impatient with your study. Don't think that after you've read it a couple of times, you're going you're gonna to get what's it. Chew on it, and God will be there with you, teaching you what he means. Uh, in this book here, I brought these because I want, I want to, to recommend them to you because I really want to strongly urge you to study the Trinity more. Um, This one is very accessible, this one here by Fred Sanders. He says, There is always already a conversation going on among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When we pray, we are joining that conversation. We have been invited to call on God as Father, invited by a spirit of sonship that cries out, Abba, Father, as the eternal God does. Eternal son does, sorry. God wants us to flourish as humans, and this is possible when we commune with him and worship and prayer. So I want to challenge you for Lent, which starts today. I put it up there for you. Look, found a couple of great verses. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him from 62.5, Psalm 62.5, and then 46.10, be still and know that I am God. So I'm going to challenge you during this time of Lent, even if you've maybe never really done Lent before, I'm going to challenge you to find 10 minutes a day. I, I, I decided on 10 because five is kind of doable. 10, you may get a little antsy. And I'm going to try to do it too. Find 10 minutes a day during these 40 days when you sit and listen to the conversation of the Trinity that is going on. You know him. He lives in you. You know his word. He will keep you safe in the knowledge that he has given you, in the revelation of himself. Just sit and listen. I don't know about you, but my life is just frenetic. And I need to learn how to be still and enjoy his presence. That's what Jesus did. That's the way he lived his life. He founded his life on his relationship with his father. He went away. He communed. He was quiet with God. He got off by himself. That energized him to do what God had given him to do that day, right? That's how he lived his life. In communion with the Father, poured out then for others. 
that's the way he wants us to live. That's the abundant life. Receiving God's love and pouring it out for others. That's the life of the Trinity. Each one loving the other and revealing themselves and giving themselves, loving the other, supporting, self-giving. And then it's poured out into the creation so that we can experience that glorious community. All right. That's what I that's what I want for us. All right, let's pray. Our precious Lord, we are so thankful for your word, for your living word that you have left for us to read, to study. We are thankful for your Holy Spirit who now lives in us to teach us, to keep us faithful, to empower us, to energize us. Lord, help us to love you and show our love for you by loving others so that as our fellowship is, expo- is exposed to the world, they may see this remarkable love that is not natural, and they may come to you, that this world may be full of true worshipers. We ask in the name of our precious Lord Jesus, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, hear our prayer. Amen. <clears throat>